in Australia, you've got to be so scrappy. You've got to do no code solutions. You've got to get your engineering mate to give you a hand with something. You've got to get someone to build you something a bit shit. And I think that DNA, it never leaves you. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders to be. If you're smart, savvy and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths and actionable insights. Strap in. Today, we are bringing you an epic conversation with Kim Teo, the founder of tech startup Mr. Yum. If you've ever been to a restaurant, browsed the menu on your phone and ordered through a QR code, chances are you've used the Mr. Yum platform. For Kim, the last few years has been wild. In 2021, she raised an $89 million Series A round, the largest ever Aussie Series A for a female-led company. But soon after she raised this cash, the tech bubble burst the economic environment dramatically shifted. And in 2022, she made the really hard decision to lay off 17% of her team. It was a necessary response to the changing economic climate and Mr. Yum's need to maintain a longer runway in the face of so much uncertainty. In this chat, Kim shares how she's thinking about her business as we move into a recession, her decision-making process around those latest redundancies, who she leans on for support when times get really tough, and why transparency is her most important leadership trait. Like I said before, feeling quite all over the shop. I definitely feel like the world is moving really quickly. The, the landscape is changing around us fast. Um, and the company and companies in our stage, like doing growth rounds, looking for um, capital to, to fund the business over the next three years are, are changing our plans. So, yeah, feeling really optimistic and still absolutely loving life. Otherwise, wouldn't be doing this and wouldn't uh, subject myself to all the um, pressure around it. But I am um, definitely, yeah, in like a bit of a, a definitely a bit in, in, in a mood for a fair bit of change, I think, over the, the next six to 12 months. Can you believe that the year is coming to an end? I mean, it's November. What does it look like heading into the end of the year for you? Looking back, it feels like the quickest year ever, but it also feels like so, so much has happened this year. I think everyone's mood in December 2021 is nearly polar opposite to their mood in December 22. Um, Australia is actually like probably been less affected from a macro point of view than other regions but you know the UK have just come out and said that they're likely to be going into their longest recession ever Um, the Fed in the US have come out and said that they're going to continue to hike interest rates to the point where inflation slows down and uh, likely it will go on for longer than they expect before you know demand is stimulated again and I think that the labor rates or like employment rates are in a position where they're reflective of a bit of a lag, meaning unemployment hasn't kicked in, you know, people haven't defaulted on their mortgages, etc. So I think the next, I think everyone's really strapping in for a really hard 2023 and possibly a pretty tough 2024 as well. Um, and that just means weathering the storm. It just means, you know, doing what we need to do from a company point of view, but also from a human point of view and just get like psychologically prepared for what I think will be pretty much the first true recession for our generation as like adults and something that we've never been through before and something that we're so unfamiliar with. Like we're just familiar with housing prices going up and up and up and houses in Australia being like the best investment ever. And I think that'll come off. I think that'll come off in a big way in the next two years and people will start to see that um, that asset prices do go down. So yeah, it's not going to be super pretty, but it's all right. We will we'll get through it and I think it'll make us stronger. Seems to be a very interesting point in time for tech especially. Like, you know, Meta has just, it's been reported today that Meta is going to be doing mass layoffs the first time in its 18-year history. Obviously, it's carnage at Twitter at the moment. You know, half the workforce has been laid off. Stripe, you know, it feels like every day there's another business 
um, that's going through this massive reduction in headcount. And, you know, it's something that you, you guys also went through this year, which we can talk about. But how are you feeling about the tech space at the moment? Like it seems like it's this amorphous kind of every day just changing so quickly. It's changed so much reflecting on 12 months. And 12 months used to be a short amount of time. Like these days, 12 months is a really long amount of time just because news travels so quickly. And so like one moment you've got, um, you know, things going in a pretty positive light and public markets still floating at a pretty good rate. And then the next minute it's all down 80% in two or three months. And then you have companies like Stripe, which is the most valuable company in the private sector doing redundancies when they've actually got you know on paper like a really really amazing 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 business that we all look up to um i think at its core like what we have to remember is for most of us anyway the problems that we're solving aren't going away like what you set out to do what you set out to solve whether that be in you know hospitality or agriculture or consumer like these you know, problems that you're trying to solve and build solutions for, they aren't going to, they're not going to not be there in five to 10 years time. Um, and actually like in hindsight, 2020 and 2021, we're just like exceptionally bubbly years. And what we're about to go into is probably more of a normal year than like a down year. It's just, it, it we just were in such a inflated, um, like over over bubbly over over um enthusiastic tech market where it felt like everything was just compounding in the right way and valuations were pumping at a rate of knots um i think it's not i think it's not really fair that i think it's been very much fueled by um i think it's very much fueled by the investor market looking for growth at all costs and and how much money can you raise so that you can just throw all of that money at growth and then hopefully you can make enough money to do it again and that you can attract enough money to go again. And I think the bubble was so driven by the FOMO in the investor market as well. It's like everyone's driving prices up and up and up and up. Um, and now everything's pulled back and everything's come off. But the cost of capital being at interest rates being at 0% has, has it, hadn't really helped either. So, yeah, I think... Long story short, I think we're going into a bit of a normal period, which will be um, will be the status quo for a few years. And I don't think we'll see our 2020 and 2021 bubbles again for like, you know, the, the, good, the, the next good three to five years. It might come back slowly, but I don't think it'll crank like it did before. It's really interesting because I guess you guys raised an $89 million Series A round, which is the biggest Series A female founded business round ever and the third largest Australian round in history. So at the time that you were going through that process, did you have any sense that you were in a bubble or was it just this like, was it just normal? Like, was it just felt normal? We. We 100% knew we were in a bubble. Did you? Mm-hmm. Like we, so we actually raised in April 2021, um, which typically it takes about uh, three months to kind of close a round with all the legals. So we were actually doing our round in February 2021, um, which was our like post-seed, they call it, which was like an 11 mil Australian round. And then we rolled into the rest of 2021 and Melbourne and Sydney were out of in and out of lockdowns and in hospitality, like that is our revenue, right? Like restaurants closing and opening and closing and opening. That's our business. So our numbers going into August, July, August, September were so choppy. They were like, oh yeah, Melbourne's closed. Sydney's closed for two days. Brisbane's doing a weekend lockdown. Like there was a period where things were just like flash lockdowns. And so when we raised when we went out to do our series a the conversation actually adrian my partner was such a good instigator of this he was like we've got to go now like our numbers look horrible on paper but the fundamentals are really good because our merchant acquisitions up but our revenue is going like this because of the lockdowns and he and i'm like how are we going to do it when like our numbers are all over the shop and he's like we have to go now like the markets are so bubbly 
anything is getting funded. If we don't go now, we're going to regret it. So we're sitting there in August 2021, looking back at our February numbers, and we're actually down on our previous round. So like our actuals are down, but we were managed, we managed to adjust our figures to assume that like all the restaurants are open based on our average revenue per restaurant um, and raise around off the back of an adjusted number. But when we went into it, like it wasn't a good time for Mr. Young to raise, um, but we knew it was a better than any time in the market to raise. And um, we are, I mean, lots of, lots of founders that have been through hard times will tell you if there's money on the table, you take it. If there's, if there's money to be offloaded, you grab it and you sit on it because at some point cash will be king and cash won't be cheap and capital is everything. And we went out to market with a 25 US like minimum raise. So it ended up being 65 US, which was 89 Australian. And when we were talking to, you know, first round investors, it would be, we said 25 US minimum, but the market, the markets were so hot at the time that, you know, we were able to pull off a much bigger round than what we anticipated. And was your strategy at that time to raise the capital as like a risk mitigation strategy? Like, were you planning on investing it all in growth or were you planning on going, actually, this is our, this is our safety net for the next two years, five years? Like, what was the plan? The plan was to act like we had 30, 30 to 40 instead of acting like we had 65. So, um, I'm talking in US dollar terms, but, um, you know, with that capital, we also made an acquisition and we still got plenty of money in the bank. Um, so yeah, we raised around at a really hot time. Um, we took more money than what we needed to take, but you never, this is actually also something that I've learned about the difference between, I think, US based founders and Australian based founders, as well as guys and girls. Like women tend to say, oh, my model tells me that I only need five million dollars to achieve my goals but you always spend money faster than what you imagine and there's always something that doesn't go to plan so you have to try it again and try again right one of your plans won't land exactly in the time frame that you predict because everything is a forecast so take the number that you think you're going to need and like double it at minimum because you never want to be stressed or making decisions under financial like duress right you don't want to be making decisions because the company is running out of money. You want to make decisions knowing that you've got the capital to continue to experiment and make mistakes and innovate and grow. So yeah, I think we, we, we took more than we needed, which we are so incredibly grateful for now. And um, this is something else that I think doesn't get talked about. So when we went to market, the other thing that gets pumped up is valuations and, our first offer, so we ended up taking 65 US at what is like a 250 pre money and 315 post. So, like 65, 250 plus 65 is 315. That's how they do pre and post money valuations. And um, our largest offer was a 350 pre money valuation, so 250 to 350. And we went to that investor that offered us 350. And we said, we're going to pull it back to 250 because we don't want to raise at that high valuation because we knew that that was indicative of a very, very lofty, bugly eyes market. And he said to us, like, there's only ever, I've only, this is the second time any founder has ever said that to us. Like, it's the second time ever in all of his deal making that someone's asked for a lower valuation. And that's a 40% difference, by the way, between the highest valuation we got and what we ended up taking. But we're so grateful for that because we're not stressed to try and get to the 250 valuation. We're not sitting there trying to build our way into this like incredibly high and lofty valuation. Um, but I think that like mindset is something that... Um, Yes, we took, we took more money, but we also actually copped more dilution than what we were, we had to, right? Like 65 at 250 is very different to 65 at 350, but we took the dilution because we wanted to set ourselves up for long-term success. And I think that 
I just think Australian founders are so much more sensible and better at that stuff. And, um, and I do think that females are better at it too, because we're just like, doesn't give me any pleasure in talking about a large evaluation. Like it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for, for a, for a, for a pump up. Um, for your ego. It's only short term. Mm. It doesn't mm. do anything for an ego. It's short term and it's a long term game. It's a little, it's a, this is a five to 10 year game. Can you talk more about what you just said earlier, which is, you know, the fact that you think women, um, are able to see the dollar go a little further? Like what, and, and also why in particular Australia over other countries, can you kind of just break it down and give us your perspective on why, yeah, women particularly and Australia, um, yeah, make yeah. great founding teams? Yeah. Um, the Australian one is a reflection of the stage of our ecosystem. So when we started four years ago, the ecosystem was much smaller than the, you know, venture capital investment, investment like ecosystem today. I remember two years ago, three years ago, when Blackbird did a 500 mil round, it was like such a massive achievement. Now we've got Airtree and Squarepeg and Blackbird all announcing 700 million plus rounds all at the same time within the same kind of few weeks. And the, and what happened was when you're a smaller kind of early stage pre-product market fit, you know, sometimes pre-revenue business in the US, it's not that hard to find a high net worth who made some money um, at one of the big Ubers or Google or Facebook. You know, they might have been an early team member there. Um, give you 300, 400 grand to get off the ground, right? Pre-product, pre-revenue. You can kind of source early stage um, capital quite easily. Whereas in Australia, it feels like you've got to prove attraction with very, very little. Like you've got to be so scrappy. You've got to do no code solutions. You've got to get your engineering mate to give you a hand with something. You've got to get someone to build you something a bit shit, but a bit shit, but good enough to show that someone likes your product. Like you've got to work pretty hard in the yeah. early days to, to generate any level of interest around a pre-seed round. And I think that DNA is, it never leaves you. Like when we went into COVID as Mr. Young, we were 12 people in our whole team. Like we had 12 people trying to onboard hundreds of restaurants, trying to build our brand. And we were so early and we still remember those days, like how much we managed to do with so little. And it never really escapes your, um, your mindset. And I think that, Australian businesses work so much harder in the first two to three years to prove themselves before they're even like looked at on a global stage. Um, so that's probably the, 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 the first one, the Australian one. And then females is just another level of difficulty on that. Like if it's hard for Australian businesses to, you know, get looked at and, and be attractive on a global stage, then it's even harder again for women. And, you know, you put those two things together, I think you've got like a really exceptional almost um natural advantage over the next two years of um i know how to work in a lean environment i understand how to build business in a lean environment and i'm actually more geared up for it and more happy that this feels like more this feels more like my natural state than the concept of like just hiring everyone and everything and just trying to throw heaps of stuff at the world and seeing what sticks. So, yeah, I'm super bullish on all the companies over the next two to three years and really bullish on female-led companies in the same vein. So you obviously had this crazy sort of experience last year when the market was bubbling, as you said, and then things have pretty dramatically shifted in 2022. And... You had to respond to that, and I'm sure many other factors in laying off 17% of the workforce at Mr. Yum. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and, and how you came to make that, what I would imagine being a really bloody hard decision, especially in the face of the culture that you've built, which is kind of known for being incredible? <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you. Um, 
we actually, I, I, I distinctly remember there was one week and um, I can talk about last week as well, which felt very similar, but there was one week um, early in May where it felt like the sky had fallen from, it's like the, the sky had fallen down in that week. And it was this week that Y Combinator, which is one of the best, which is the best accelerator in the world, they published like a 10 step um, email for their entire like existing and cult and founder alum, alumni. And there's like thousands and thousands of people on this list. And within three hours, I got this email from multiple people sending this document to me. And it was very bleak. It was like, cash is king, do everything you can to get to profit. Like it was super bleak. And I thought at the time, like this thing is like a bit full on, you know, like, can they calm down? Like, whoa, like, <laughs> like, 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 whoa, chill out. Like, yeah, yeah, up. Like this is, this is so dramatic. Like this is so, so dramatic. dramatic. Yeah, a little bit dramatic. Everyone yeah. needs to calm down. All right, yeah. YT. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I was like, are they dramatic? What's going on? Um, and, um, and then actually we came back from a, a trip that we were on at the time. And I remember sitting on the plane, writing out a pretty long email for the team. And it started with, it started with like, we're likely to be going into a recession. And this is what a recession even means because we have so many young people on our team that have never lived through one and do not understand the world in which, um, that happens and what happens when that happens as well, thinking about their mortgages and the way they think about their cash and investing their money. Um, the reasons we did it were very simple. We, everyone was told to extend their runway. We had overhired, which is exactly what Stripe said in their kind of um, letter from Patrick. We overhired because we were going into board meetings early in 2022 when it was like, we're not, hiring fast enough we're not growing fast enough right so like you get kind of caught up in this growth at all costs mean literally all costs meaning like hire anyone to make it go faster and we hired way too quickly the company got to the point where people didn't know who to go to for what because instead of a team being three the team was now seven and um roles and responsibilities got diluted and um probably confusion set in around like org structures, et cetera. So um, we did it because we had bloated. We definitely felt like we'd overhired um, as well as we were being told to, you know, extend our runway um, out much, much longer than what we had, we had planned for. Um, and it was a bit of a, I think everyone in the ecosystem, most I've spoken to so many founders that have been through similar exercises the lead up to it is very stressful because you can't tell anyone and you you can't talk about it and you've got a very small group of people that you're going through this process with and your day is filled by talking about the worst things like all day you're just talking about like a shit scenario and um so you finish the day and you're like oh that was exhausting and absolutely draining but when by the time we made the decision which took us I think a good two two and a half two two to two and a half months to make the call. By the time we made the decision the the focus then shifted to if we're gonna do this we're gonna we're gonna absolutely nail it. Like if we if we do this we have to do it better than we could ever imagine. Um and a lot of effort went into planning exactly how we would execute on the day. Um, literally had a notion of like minute by minute, like what we were going to do from 1 p.m. through to the next three or four days. And um, I think it landed well. I think it landed well because we weren't keeping any secrets from the team around how the recession was likely setting in and how the markets were acting. And we did heaps of AMAs and educational pieces. We even showed the team like, this is how long it usually lasts and this is what it needs. And we just like tried to bring the macroeconomic like climate into our office and into our um, educational piece so that by the time it happened, it wasn't a surprise and it felt like the right thing to do. I think people felt like we were being responsible. Um, and then also, you know, you have to look after 
team members, like we, we let people stay on Slack, which it sounds like such a small thing, but telling someone that they're being made redundant and then cutting off all their access and they can't talk to their friends or they can't talk to their colleagues just feels like a very untrusting thing. It's like, what are they going to steal from you? Like, what are they going to take? Like, you know, so we removed their kind of like access to our CRMs and, you know, things like that, but we kept them on Slack, which is our main communication tool. And I think even just that helped with the feeling of how we were treating the people who were no longer going to be in the team. Um, and a lot of focus that week was on making sure that we had a good network of other companies that were hiring that we could try and help people find roles. Um, yeah. And I think just the, you know, just the, the, the less cold and hard ass approach to redundancies and the more like, um, human aspect. And I think as well, a lot of people felt that we were very transparent with the, um, with what had happened. And ironically, a lot of the friends actually, like a lot of their, a lot of our partners, a lot of their friends ended up reaching out and saying like, wow, I've never, I think the way that you guys have done it is probably the best I've ever seen. And it almost like gives, gives a team a little bit of like comfort that the world's not looking at them, like looking, like looking down on them, like, like everyone's actually kind of, um, in admiration a little bit. So yeah, I think, um, it, it's a really hard thing to do, but if, if, if done right, it can, um, it can almost give your team a bit more confidence in what they had going into it. Was that the hardest decision that you've made in the business? Yep, for sure, 100%. How did it impact you personally, like carrying that decision alone or with your small team for two and a half months and then you know, having to go, you know, having to, having to execute on the plan, like how did that impact you personally? It was really, it was really draining leading up to it. And I actually think for some of my, some of my team, it was even harder because we had some amazing team members who were kind of advising us through this and they could, they could feel our hesitation. Like I think actually, in some ways it was hard for me, but it was also hard for some people who were saying like, Hey, this is the right thing to do. And we've got to do it. And I'm sitting there going, I don't want to do it. And, um, and they knew it was the right thing to do. And they were like hundred percent right in the end. Um, but I think that, I mean, it was hard for me, but I think it was harder for some others as well. Um, having like in hindsight, I think we feel like we pulled off a really hard thing as well as we could have. And I've learned, so much from it and the more I talk to people who have been in business for a lot longer than me this stuff happens and it's going to happen it's going to happen again it'll happen in 10 years time and it'll probably happen in another 10 years like I was listening to I was watching actually something the other day and it said that Apple made like a 31 percent like when Steve Jobs came back into Apple back in the day he did like a 31 percent headcount reduction and then after that they did really, really well out of Apple. So, and now they're the most, you know, valuable company in the world. So, yeah, I think it's almost like a bit of a growing up experience in, in business um, and one that will give us a lot more. I think it's just, yeah. you can't, you can't like learn it in a textbook. You have to go through no. it to learn Imagine. it. And so it's like, it's like battle scars. It's like, it's giving you mm. some battle scars that makes you more resilient for the future. Totally. Yeah, it's definitely not something that you can pluck out of a textbook, but it does sound as if you co-created and co-designed a solution with your small team that that worked really well and sounds really quite humane for, you know, something that is uh, can often be unforgiving and a really, you know, tough um, moment in anyone's kind of leadership journey, right, to have to pull the pin on someone else's dream um, quite often. It's, it's not easy and and it won't necessarily get any easier but you're right it is part of business but I do love the idea that um you know you obviously pulled on a lot of people and a lot of experience to design something that you were happy with yeah and I think transparency and um like 
you know, we even did stuff like sent an email to all of our partners saying that that's what happened so that our team didn't have to go through this process of partners approaching them and asking them what had happened. It's like just getting on the front foot of any level of backlash means that you own the messaging from day one and people aren't finding out about it through the grapevine. It's like needing to stamp out this like gossip and, and stigma, um, I think really helped. We actually ended up like kind of cleansing our playbook and sharing it with a bunch of other founders as well. And just trying to like, cause some, then we had founders that helped us in our planning and just trying to like, you know, pass the, pass the learnings on. So how have you reset following that? Like how have you sort of reset the plan, the strategy, the team, the culture? Yeah. How have you done that? Yeah. We did actually make it really clear the week of the redundancies was like a week that we focused on the people who were leaving. And then 10 a.m. Monday morning, we presented a dot like a what we called the plan ahead. Um, and the plan ahead had a recap of, you know, our vision and our mission and just how far we've come, right? Like it, it's almost like we needed to be reminded of there was like a blip in the sand, but actually in the whole journey that, that there's been a lot of good. Um, and the most important thing that our team were looking for was like, what are we, what are we not doing? So the fear, the fear of the team is like, we're just reducing headcount and we're still continuing to have to do all of the things that we said we were going to do. And so I think the number one most important thing on the race that for the team was just understanding how we're becoming more, fo- more focused and what are we choosing not to do and what are we not going after? Um, and I think for, for us, it was, um, I think it was quite, I think it was quite refreshing actually to, um, stop being in the headspace of thinking about like a shit thing and being able to think about the business forward. Um, we got all the teams together the week after as well and tried to do more in-person stuff to make sure that we could keep the culture and the morale going and our people team have been massively helpful there. Can you take us into that meeting? Can you share some of the things that you are changing, some of the new directions that you're going in, perhaps some of the things that you decided to leave behind because you obviously do now have a reduction in staff. It's just impossible to go after everything, but I also, you know, would assume you're being a lot more strategic in your direction. Can you share some of that with us? Yeah, I think um, probably the main thing for for us anyway was um, like reshuffling some of the roles and responsibilities and reshuffling some of the teams because when you shrink the size of the organization you end up with gaps so you know this person that used to do this how does that work now get distributed or belong somewhere else um in the space of like product and innovation there's you go from having like a list of 15 things that you're working on to like a list of 12 things that you're working on so um you know pushing out some of our integration work um, pushing up, building like some very specific um, functionality for like enterprise customers, for example. Um, yeah, just not not saying that we're not going to do those things, but almost saying that it can wait. It can wait. Um, like we were going to do a pretty big piece of work on um, like user roles and permissions, for example, which is like something we've been wanting to do for a while and. Um, that got nudged out probably six months or so, or maybe even longer. So it just, it's just stuff like, all right, that's not, that's deprioritized, that's moving. Like it's, it's, that, it's, it's really simple, um, simple stuff. But yeah, I think it was a great exercise for us to question what we really need to do. The other thing that founders I think are struggling with at the moment is this pressure around keeping like really high growth rates. So still wanting to grow your business fast like month on month quarter on quarter year on year but then having to do it with a smaller team um and how we're thinking about it now is like the reward around um you know the reward around growing the business at 3x 
um, versus growing the business at 2x. So, you know, growing 300% versus growing 200%. Like if you're going to spend $10 million to get there, it's probably not worth it. So it's like, it's just, it's a mindset of like, it's not growth at all costs anymore. It's like capital efficient growth. It's like, how do we do this in a way that's really, really efficient? Um, and that bleeds into to everything. But yeah, I think, you know, we've had some people resign since the redundancies when we rolled into redundancies. Our head of people suggested it would be around 10%. Typically you get people... Because what happens, and this is so fascinating, the second you announce a redundancy, everyone in your team gets hit off by recruiters. Mm, yes. Right. So they're trying to work yes. out. They're trying to work out who's going. So they're like, "Hey, sorry to hear. Like, have you been affected? Like, like, and and when you get that influx of um, demand." Um, there's no doubt that people are going to get curious. And if there's a really good opportunity that lands in their inbox, even if they haven't been made redundant, they, even if their roles haven't been made redundant, they might still pursue that opportunity. So we were kind of expecting like a five to 10%, um, you know, resonation rate post redundancies. We haven't quite seen like 10%, but we are definitely still experiencing more resonations than we were pre redundancies um so i think it's just that's just the nature of operating in a different world and um to be honest tech becoming like a harder industry to work in as well we've had people leave for like you know bigger company roles and i can't blame them like the outlook on technology if you're not crazy and like wanting to grind and what like the next two or three years is going to be a grind mm. if you're not someone that's like i'm and i'm like yeah. I'm, I'm i'm crazy and i'm up to the grind. Like, yeah. like you know i understand like, promotions pay rises promotions like valuations exits like everything's just going to be slower over the next two years yeah and so if you're not like in it you've got there's other jobs you could go to easier much easier, easier jobs. jobs and paths for mm, people much yeah jobs. you've got yeah. to be crazy you've got to be crazy yeah yeah got to be crazy yeah, <laughs> yeah you do you've, you've got to be crazy. be crazy so as you said you know it's going to be a lot slower over the next kind of couple of years how are you going to continue to grow the business how are you going to get you know enter new markets onboard new restaurants like what are you looking at what are you doing to continue yeah. to grow yeah our like industry is luckily pretty res- resilient to recessions. Like pubs are actually the most resilient. Thriving, <laughs> yeah, yeah. thriving. Like, oh, yeah. it's like a cheap. It's like a cheap pastime. Like if you don't go to Byron, you're going to the pub. Go to the local, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, so true. true. And you can do everything there, really. Let's be honest. You have dinner, you can catch up for a drink, you can work. Anna and I used to sit at the pub and work. I mean, you really can do do it all. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think we're good. Like our our sales team are like crushing their targets and doing the best that they've ever done. Um it feels like our like it feels like demand from our customers from the restaurant side is still really really healthy um consumer spending might change so like you might find i think i think we'll definitely see a tapering off at the fine dining and like the 300 dollars a head kind of category of food which is more like an experience as opposed to a pub meal but like we don't really work with like fine dining restaurants for misty um in the like serve space anyway um so yeah i think we're like luckily relatively recession proof um, custom, like businesses like Shopify, for example, are much more badly hit because, you know, do you really need to buy that amazing summer dress? Like, yeah, you do, but you know, maybe you won't. Like, I think, I think when when we start to think about kind of like the needs versus the wants, mm. um, and when and when mortgages become more expensive, which I think everyone is starting to feel, then you look at your kind of discretionary spending and e-commerce and brands that are not 
they're selling things that people don't necessarily need will get hit the hardest. Um, but yeah, people seem to continue drinking Always. in a recession. People, Always. people seem to continue <laughs> grabbing that beer. So I think we're, I think we'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> What's currently keeping you awake at night? What's sort of playing on your mind at the moment? Um, I, whenever someone asks me this, like I've, I'm so lucky. I don't, I don't like technically, I don't struggle to sleep really. Like I, I, um, I sleep pretty easily and I don't tend to wake up unless I'm jet lagged. But, um, I think metaphorically speaking, like what am I concerned about? I think I'm, um, I'm definitely concerned about when, when we first heard about the world and technology changing, um, which was around April, May timing. I think everyone was sitting there going, we're going to, by the end of the year, we're going to see how long this is going to last. Like in April, May, it was like, cool, something's going on. Are we going to head into tough times? How long is it going to last? We don't know yet, but something's happening. Um, We're going to find out by the end of the year was kind of the like messaging. We're now at the end of the year. And um, the last week, which is like just last week, it it actually feels like almost like a like a second dip at you know the things that were happening back in May, which is like the Twitter fifty percent, the stripe, and the open door, and the Apple Apple putting a hiring freeze on all non engineering talent. Um, like you said, Meta coming out and saying they were going to do some pretty significant. Like it feels like. It feels like the big tech is now moving. Like the in May it was kind of the the growth stage startups like bigger than us and similar stage to us. And now it's like genuinely the top ten companies are making moves. Um and that doesn't signal well. Yeah. Yeah. It signals for like um I think a two year recession or like a two year time frame when the markets are going to trend relatively flat and not pump. So that's a little bit concerning for us. Like it's, um, it's not concerning to the fundamentals of our business. Cause I think we're less affected by the consumer demand, um, in the way that kind of discretionary spending is, but it is, um, definitely on my mind when it comes to like the capital markets and investing and, and that sort of stuff. Who do you have around you as like your support network, both professional but also personal, that like helps you through these really shitty hard times and also is there to celebrate the epic times? Like who's in your squad? <laughs> That's a really good question. We we do lean on our investors a fair bit. We've got um so Airtree and ten thirteen um and we've got a recent, we added a recent board member who was the ex-MD of APAC from Zero and he's been really helpful. Um, but outside of that, typically it's easier to lean on founder friends mm. um, as well as your team. Like we actually, like ironically through hard times, teams actually kind of get together a lot more. Um, our exec team have become incredibly close over the last 12 months I think and we have such a great relationship like relationship and we have like a really trusted space in the exec team that I w- will never take for granted I think it's a very big superpower of um of what we've built and um but then also like in 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 Melbourne for example like the founders of Linktree are pretty good friends of ours and they invested in Misty Young pretty early. We have offices around the corner from each other. We live in similar neighborhoods. Um, they they did the redundancies actually two weeks before mm. us. And the Friday, mm. the Friday of his, he was like, what are you guys doing? Can I come over? And we're like, yeah, yeah, come over. And so he's just sitting there kind of like, yeah, yeah. he's like, can we have a beer? Yeah. I, I'm, yeah. like, I'm, so, I, I'm like, I need one right now. So he comes over mm. and he just like gives us this huge debrief on the last four days of work that they've been doing and um you know everything is so clear in his mind because it just happened mm. but it's like a 
you can't outlet all of that to your investors all the time in exactly the same way mm. that you can to your founder friends. Um, so yeah, those guys and us are pretty, are pretty close. Yeah, amazing. What, um, what are you working on personally at the moment? Like what area of growth are you interested in? I, it's a great question. I, um, I've decided that I want to get a, I want to become a better writer. Nice. Um, when I was young, I really sucked at English and I like absolutely, um, didn't buy into like any of the higher English and like the journalism and stuff like that. And so, um, and I don't think I really understood the value of writing, um, since I think this year in particular, it's helped me understand that long form content and just getting your thoughts on paper in a format that you can share with your team, with your leaders, with your partners, um, just has such a powerful impact. It's like, it's so asynchronous, meaning like anyone can read it in their own time that people can digest it in different ways. Um, and I've been trying to do it a lot more. So yeah, I'm actually looking for like a, some kind of, some kind of course or something that I can do. Cause I think I want to get much better at it and probably commit to from next year, like a once a month email out to the whole company. Cause I think I just don't do that. And we do like AMAs and, you know, we get on video and we talk, but, um, they, the, the craving for like what's top of mind for the founders is like such a huge craving. And the, the, the team just want to hear the same things over and over again. They want to make sure that it's not the same things, but they want to, they want to yeah. know what's on your mind. Um, yeah. and I think writing is such a powerful way to do that. So yeah. And, and actually something that we've kind of been talking to the rest of the exec team about too, like a lot of them have mm-hmm. great ideas, um, but they tell one person and they might tell another person and if they write it down and they share it, then it becomes this like kind of thought leadership yeah Um, so yeah super keen to get better at writing it seems like transparency is like a core part of your leadership style you know you've said it a few times now and in various examples that like communication over communication sometimes with your staff members and it's like radical transparency is part of I guess it seems like part of how you've built such a trusting culture how else do you lead like what else is important to you as a leader um, I definitely believe in like player coach leadership. So being able to get your hands dirty and be a player on field and be the coach at the same time. Don't believe in, um, you know, ivory tower style leadership. So I, I also think there's, it's like the skill of manage, management is less important then the ability to actually do the job of your team because if you can execute, if you're the best person at doing that job and you've been elevated into a managerial position, the team are automatically going to come to you for advice. They're automatically going to come to you for feedback and for help because you're just like, you could, you know, you've, you've got the credibility to crush that role. Um, there's actually a lot of, a lot of stuff written about like, the kinds of people that you want to promote into managers are the people that never wanted to be managers in the first place because they're not looking for like this hierarchical, like I'm, I've got a team of six and look at me and I'm a manager and I love telling the team what to do. It's like, I'm just, a, I just happen to be the best person at the job and now I can coach based on my understanding of my skills. And I think us as an organization, we're so much better to set up to teach people management skills than we are to teach people how to empathize and how to get their hands dirty. So um, that's probably my style. Like um, the team would say I'm like really involved in lots of parts of the business. Not that um, I see anything through anymore. I'm kind of like the person who's responsible for getting it from zero to one and then someone takes it over and they get the train moving. But I I feel like I'm my responsibility is to initiate a lot of the um, the projects and the change that happens in, in the business and stay across everything from like, you know, product to legal to finance to CX to sales and just have a, have a view to all of the parts without too many blinkers. Um, I think that's my 
style. Like I'm not good at, I, I don't think I, I don't think I um, would be as effective in my role without having like a pretty broad, like almost like a wide and not deep lens mm. on, on, on the business. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's just my, that's my style. And yeah. we hire for it now as well. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, if you, if you're going to hire a sales leader, they need to be the best salesperson. That's my, that's just, that's just my belief and our belief. Um, if you're going to hire a, um, you know, someone who's great at something technical to be an architect and to lead by thought leadership and to lead by design, it's like engineers want to look up to the person from a, thought leadership point of view not just a co I'm managing your delivery and I'm telling you what to do and when because <laughs> um, if you hire like self-motivated and engaged people they don't tend to need that management they just need guidance and um, and leadership yeah so we've got one final question Kim we'd love to know what is the best piece of business, personal, any kind of life advice um, that you want to leave our listeners with? I think the best um, the best advice for me would be like build a company with people that you are friends with. Um, I don't know if that's scalable or a forever goal, but it is so up and down and the world around you changes consistently that I think if you weren't friends with your co-founders and with your team, things would be really challenging and quite difficult. So, um, yeah, we try to become, you know, close friends with people around us and we also hire for people who we think we can be friends with. Um, not that you have to have the same level of, you know, type of thinking or the same school of thought or the same strength, but if you want to hang out with someone on the weekend and you want to have a beer with them and you want to, um, play social sport with them then it's probably a good sign that you're going to build a good company together well that was such a big conversation but oh my gosh we were so inspired by kim's resilience and honestly just her ability to continue putting one foot in front of the other all the while having a smile on her face what an absolute legend Our biggest reflection from this chat is really that no matter what stage of business you're in, whether you are running out of cash or whether you are absolutely thriving, whether you've bootstrapped, whether you've raised $100 million, there are always going to be challenges. That is part and parcel of building a business. And in fact, as Kim shared with us, more often than not, the bigger the business, the bigger the challenges before you. But I think her story really reminds us that in order to weather any storm, you just need to take it day by day minute by minute, decision by decision, and lean on those around you. There really is a solution to every single problem that you face, no matter how big. And we really hope this episode has left you feeling a little bit hopeful and also confident that no matter what lies ahead, you have absolutely got this. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple and Spotify. And if you love the show, please let us know. Slide into our DMs over on Instagram. We're at lady.brains. 